And a warm welcome to our Sunday morning service. Uh, we're thrilled that we're able to meet together this morning and to worship our Lord together. Just a couple of notices before we begin. Uh, next week, uh, Tim is going to be preaching a new series uh, going through the book of Second Peter. So that'll be the uh, morning service uh, next week. Then on Thursday, we have uh, a prayer meeting uh, online. Uh, so I'll send out a link uh, for that meeting uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, you just follow the link and then you can attend the prayer meeting uh, and um, break out into different rooms so we can pray uh, for various things. So it'd be good if you could join us uh, for that so we can pray to our God together as a church. Uh, as some of you uh, know, we're currently in tier four restrictions and that does mean we're not able to have uh, children's or youth work, which includes uh, the Sunday school. But we do have, if you want some, uh, some sermon questions uh, that are at the back, and there is a worksheet um, or a coloring sheet for younger ones. Uh, that also is for the teenagers as well. So if you want to do that, uh, they're on the back table. So at some point during the service, you can uh, go and, and get one of those. Uh, make sure, by the way, that you put your name on it for when you're handing it in, so I know who's uh, is who uh, when I'm looking at them. Well, before we begin, uh, let us, or rather let us begin uh, by praying to our God together. Let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that we are able to meet together this morning to worship you, our Lord God, the one who is worthy of our worship because of who you are, the one who we want to worship in the light of all that you have done for us. We want to remind each other this morning of how wonderful you are and encourage one another to live for you in these days in which we live. So this morning we ask that you would thrill our hearts, challenge us, <coughs> encourage us, bring salvation to us, point us to our Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn this morning speaks of how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Oh, mm-hmm. 
reasons that Jesus's name is so sweet to our ears is that he is a living savior, one who has risen from the dead. And because he is risen from the dead, we can look forward also to that day of resurrection. And Paul speaks of that day in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to have a reading from that chapter. So Jan's going to come and read that to us from verse 35. And after we've had this read, then Morris is going to Uh, Lead us in prayer uh, from the screen, if you're wondering where he is. (laughs) The resurrection body. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he is determined, and to each kind of seed, he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, the stars another, and the stars, each stars differ from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. 
The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first mad Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been closed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of the sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, our Saviour, the one who was dead but is alive forevermore the one who is at your right hand, who is praying for his people. Thank you, Father, that we have one who knows us, who loves us, keeps us, guards and protects us, who has promised not to lose any of those who have trusted in him. And we are once again amazed by your grace and mercy to us. Thank you that you called us from darkness into your most marvellous light. Once we were not a people, but being in Christ, we have become the people of God. We give you praise and thanks that you have not left us alone, but have given your Holy Spirit to help us, to prompt us, to encourage us to live for you. Father, you know the difficulties we face as your children at this time. Many are unwell and cut off from family and friends. Our gatherings together have been so disrupted, but we thank you that you are known to us in our hearts, and we pray that we would know true joyful fellowship with you in these dark days. Many are fearful and anxious in the midst of this pandemic. Would you help us all to trust you and still our hearts in the midst of this storm? We would remind ourselves that the Lord Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and who sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Lord, we thank you that your living word gives us hope. And we can say with the hymn writer, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, It is well, it is well with my soul. So Father, would you lift us today by your word and in the spirit to praise you from full and glad hearts as we remember your everlasting and unfailing love being secure in your hands moment by moment. In the Saviour's name, Amen. Stand on every promise of your word. 
If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, we're going to be in verses 23 to 33 this morning. And if you have a, a Bible, it would help you to turn there so you can follow along. <clears throat> Many of you uh, might remember from your English classes at school that an adjective is a describing word. However, some describing words lose their power when they're either used too much or they're not used correctly. So, for example, we rightly describe God as awesome, but nowadays that word is used for almost anything. So I, I might have a piece of cake and say, oh, this cake is awesome, but it doesn't really use the word in the same way that obviously you would describe God. But some adjectives are used in different ways, sometimes perhaps opposite ways. And one of those adjectives is the word incredible. Incredible. So originally, the meaning incredible was quite negative. That is, it doesn't have any credibility. But now we use the word incredible to describe something that's really good. So if you tell your wife, you look incredible, she's not going to look at you and think, are you saying that I'm not really believable? She's going to be obviously very happy that you think she looks that way. Well, in today's passage in the Bible, we are going to see a biblical truth that really can be described as incredible. But how you use the adjective depends on where you stand with Jesus. I'm talking about incredible resurrection. There is a group of people in this passage who think that the resurrection is a concept that is lacking credibility. But Jesus shows us that resurrection is truly incredible in the sense that it is the most wonderful truth ever. So if you've been uh, following in the evening services, we're, we've been going through Matthew's Gospel, and we're in a section of the Gospel where Jesus' authority is being challenged by different groups of religious leaders who, if you look in chapter 22 and verse 15, uh, want to trap him in his words. So it says there, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. So we've seen uh, various groups try to do this. We've seen the chief priests, the elders, the Herodians, and the disciples of the Pharisees all have a go at Jesus, and so far they've all been without success. And so now we come to yet another group, a group of religious people called the Sadducees, the Sadducees. 
Now, they uh, believed a couple of things that, or rather didn't believe a couple of things that are important to understand this passage. The first thing they didn't believe was any of the Old Testament except the first five books of the Old Testament. So they believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Anything else the Sadducees said was not the word of God. So they didn't believe in any of uh, the, the books of history or prophets. Uh, they didn't believe either in the oral traditions of the Pharisees. But they, they only believed in those first five books of the Bible. But secondly, they also rejected any idea of a spiritual world. No, they didn't believe in angels and demons. And what is key to this passage is they did not believe in a resurrection of the dead or an afterlife of any kind. They did not believe it. And so they were quite an exclusive group. They weren't on friendly terms with the other groups that had seen Jesus. But all of them agreed that something needed to be done to put Jesus down and destroy his authority. And so having watched all the other groups fail, they come to Jesus with a debate that they believe will trap him, tie him up in his words, and damage his authority. And we see that debate from verse 23 to 33. So let's read this passage together. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, you are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This is God's word. When the Sadducees here talk of the resurrection, here in verse 28, they are not talking about Jesus' resurrection, which had not yet happened. It would happen less than a week later. This is the week that these debates are going on, that he goes to the cross and then he rises from the dead. But the Sadducees were talking here about both life after death and specifically the bodily resurrection of all people at the end of the age, which was spoken about in the Old Testament. So two examples are in Daniel 12 and Isaiah 26. So Daniel 12 verse 2 says... Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And then Isaiah 26 verse 19 says, but your dead will live, Lord, their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy, 
Your dew is like the dew of the morning. The earth will give birth to her dead. The problem here is that the Sadducees didn't believe that Isaiah or Daniel were speaking God's word. Remember, they believed only in the first five books of the Old Testament. But Jesus did believe in those scriptures. And in the Gospels, he, he quotes both from Isaiah and from Daniel. But the Sadducees come to Jesus with this question on resurrection. Because like today, many, like the Sadducees, thought the resurrection is ridiculous. That's the purpose behind them coming to Jesus. They want to make Jesus look ridiculous. Ridiculous in his belief that in the resurrection. And they think he won't be able to answer their question, and so he will lose his authority. And so they come to Jesus with a right conundrum of a question in verses 24 to 28. In verse 24, they quote from the Old Testament law, from the book of Deuteronomy, one of the books that they believed in. And they speak of a law that said that if a man died and has no children, his brother must marry him, or marry her, sorry, and bring children into the world for his brother. So we find this law in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6. It says, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her, and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother, so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So this law seemed to have three main purposes. First of all, it provided security for the widow, so that she was not destitute when her husband died. Secondly, it prevented the loss of the deceased husband's property to the larger family or clan. And thirdly, it ensured that the dead man's name would be preserved within the family. So although it, was a, it might seem strange to us, in those days uh, of Deuteronomy 25, this law did make sense to protect the widows at the time. Now, we don't see this law being enacted very much, but we did see it in the book of Ruth that we have recently looked at. So when Boaz married Ruth, after uh, first going to a closer relative, which was one who was closer uh, in the, in, uh, as a brother, um, he then married Ruth, and it fulfilled, actually, this very law. We also see it in Genesis chapter 38, in a very disturbing story where the brothers did not want to take on uh, their brother's wife. And you can, you can read about that in Genesis chapter 38. But using this law, the Sadducees come up with an extreme scenario that is designed to show how ridiculous the resurrection is to believe in. And I believe that their scenario is a fictitious story rather than a real live situation but what seems to happen here is that a woman marries, and then that husband dies, and her brother follows this law in Deuteronomy, but he dies, and then the same thing happens seven times. So if you're one of these brothers, and you're at the altar, and you're going to get married, you are going to be quaking in your boots, aren't you? You'd be thinking, oh my goodness, 
I'm going to die. <laughs> so you're going to marry this, this woman because you, and you're going to be scared because you're going to think, well, she must be cursed. Or worse, uh, she's putting something in their, their cup of tea first thing in the morning, um, which is something that actually happened in the Victorian era. There was a woman uh, that used to knock off her husbands by putting arsenic in their tea in order to claim the life insurance. Her name was Mary Ann Cotton. And you can read about her. It's quite an interesting case. But the, the, the men marrying her, they would have been pretty terrified, wouldn't they? But the point that the Sadducees are making is not how unfortunate or dangerous this woman is, but rather their question is in verse 28. Look at the question. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? This question is one of scorn, and you can hear the scorn here. They're doing something like this. So Jesus, are they going to arm wrestle for her? Are they going to take her out on a date so she can pick her favorite one? Is she cursed in the afterlife too, so they're going to die there as well? And they're laughing at him, ridiculing him. How stupid it is to believe in the resurrection. Can't you see? Do you see what they're doing? And we see this kind of thing today because many people think that it's still ridiculous to believe in a physical resurrection. And although the Sadducees were not talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that's the resurrection that we put our hope in, and that is widely ridiculed today. There was a survey done by the BBC a few years ago where people were asked if they were Christians, and if so, do you believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ? And 25% of those surveyed said that they did not. And so the headline came up with, a quarter of Christians don't believe in the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it was a stupid headline, because I take issue with the fact of what it says. Because the reality is, 100% of Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because if you don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not a Christian. But today, that is ridiculed. Some church leaders teach that it's a metaphor, not physical. Skeptics claim it was a myth that the disciples were hallucinating or they conspired together to make it all up. The problem is that none of this fits with the evidence that shows that Jesus really did rise from the dead physically. But Christians are ridiculed for this belief. How ridiculous to believe that someone could come back from the dead. But I would say if you're concerned about whether the resurrection is true or not, you're unsure, there are loads of really good resources that I would love to point you to to show that the resurrection is a historical reality. And I'd love to tell you more about that. So if you're concerned about that, you're not sure, then do come and ask and we'd love to, to share more with you about the, the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in our passage here, the trap was set for Jesus. If he agrees with the Sadducees, then he loses his authority with the majority of Jewish people who did believe in a real resurrection. But if he disagrees with them, he's got to come up with an answer to this extreme scenario or declare that he believes in the resurrection without any basis for really doing so. And Jesus does answer. And as with all of these debates in Matthew 
uh, chapter 22, he answers brilliantly. He explains to them, you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Those who do not believe in resurrection or they think it's ridiculous do not understand either what the Bible teaches or they don't understand the power of the God of the Bible. The scriptures teach the resurrection, including the scriptures that the Jewish people of Jesus' time had, as we've seen in Daniel and Isaiah. But the Sadducees, their view of God was pretty limited. Even in the books they do believe in, you can see the power of God on display. I mean, take the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read how God created the whole universe and created mankind out of the dust of the ground. What kind of view of God can believe that God can do that, but yet he can't raise the dead? So in verse 29, Jesus explains the problem to the Sadducees. You do not know the scriptures or the power of God. And then in verses 30 to 32, he explains both the scriptures and the power of God to them to show that this resurrection is a real, um, wonderful truth, not ridiculous at all. And he begins in verse 30 with the power of God. So he uses their question of marriage to teach on the power of God. Look at verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So the Sadducees' picture of resurrection was a kind of a continuation of life from earth that included all the complications and mess of this fallen world. And if that's what resurrection is, if we're, we're looking forward to just redoing life on earth with all the problems of earth, that is not much of a hope at all. That's a, that's a, bit, of a, that's a bit of a misery, really. I'm not saying that all of life on earth is miserable, but there are miserable things about this world, aren't there? Now, don't mishear me. There is some continuity in that we will have Uh, We've read it in 1 Corinthians 15 in our Bible reading. Physical bodies that will be in a physical place, but our experience of life will be so very different to what it is in this fallen world. And one of the ways that it will be different is that there will not be marriage at the resurrection. In heaven, we will be like the angels. Now, this doesn't mean we will be angels. We're not going to to sprout wings and all those kind of things. But we will be like them, like them in their capacity to worship God, unhindered by sin, serving him perfectly. In their capacity to worship God, unhindered by sin, serving him perfectly. So that's how we'll be like them. And this will not include marriage. This does not mean that when we get there, we're going to forget that we were married to this person, but just that the relationship will change. And it's changed in a number of ways. First of all, earthly marriage always points forward to the greater intimacy that we have with God. And in heaven, we're going to have that closeness with God and 
with everybody else. Now, of course, I'm not talking here of the sexual aspect of marriage, but there will be a closeness, an intimacy with everybody in heaven that is better, we will see, even than the best earthly marriage. The picture is no longer needed because we'll be living the reality. Secondly, like the angels, we're not going to die or give birth. And so one of the main purposes of marriage, of being fruitful and multiplying, is not necessary. The earth will be filled with God's children as one large family. So marriage won't be needed in terms of being fruitful and multiplying. And so the situation with that law in Deuteronomy where the dead brother's wife had to marry to carry on her dead husband's name will also be unnecessary. In fact, if you look at verse 24, notice there you have the phrase raise up offspring. Now the word raise up there is the same as resurrection, the same word. So raising up, Jesus is saying here, physical children will be unnecessary because God has already raised up all those who are his children in the resurrection, you see? So there will be no need for this kind of law because the children are already raised up, God's offspring. Now I know for some of you this might be difficult to hear because you might be looking forward to meeting your husband or your wife in heaven. And you will, if they're Christians, meet them again. But but it's hard to imagine, but your relationship will be different, but better. All of our relationships in heaven are going to be perfected ones. And what we can take from Jesus here is, although we, we can't fully grasp, and it is beyond what we can fully grasp, which I'm glad because it's going to be better than we can fully grasp, what we can take from Jesus here is that when we're in heaven, we are not going to wish that we were still in that same relationship with our spouse that we had on earth. We won't miss what we had on earth because what we have in heaven will be so much better. That, Jesus says, is the power of God. But there is a bigger point here even than marriage. Because the Pharisees were trying to debunk resurrection as a whole, and they were using this marriage scenario as their way of doing it. The bigger point is this. The power of God is so great that the resurrection life will be a totally transformed life in every area. So Philippians chapter 3 is helpful here. In verses 20 to 21, Paul writes this, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So notice that there is some continuity, we'll have bodies, but they will be different. They will be transformed to be like Jesus' glorious body. And this is why and where resurrection is truly incredible, in the good sense of the word incredible. Because our whole being is going to be transformed by God's power. So 
there will be no sickness in these bodies. Our minds will be completely clear and full and able to consider God. There will be no sin or the ability to sin and no suffering of the consequences of sin. There will be no death and so no grieving over the loss of a loved one. One of the saddest things about this life is that so often the last time that we see somebody is when they are physically or mentally broken. But if they are Christians, the next time that we see them, they will be completely transformed. Isn't that wonderful? Think of those with mental health problems or dementia. When you see them in heaven, they will be transformed. And in an earthly sense, you will hardly recognize them, except you'll have the mind mind capacity to be able to. This is the power of God. Do you know it? Do you know it not just intellectually, but do you know in your hearts that this is the power of God so that Christians of all people in this time have this great hope that brings us comfort and encouragement. Another aspect of this which I, which I found really helpful is to remember that this transformed body or existence is how God sees you. Do you ever wonder how God can have such patience with you when you mess up so often? It's because he sees what you will be one day. He sees the transformation that he's working in you even now. And we should be the same with God's people because sometimes as Christians we have to deal with uh, other Christians that are difficult. We deal with Christians that have mental and physical problems. And I would urge you to remember what they will be and how it is a privilege for God to use you to be part of that transformation in their lives so that they are being transformed into the the glorious image of Christ. What a privilege to be part of that. With a hope like this, you kind of feel sorry for the Sadducees. They mock Jesus, but they are totally hopeless, as are all of those who do not know the power of God. But how do we know that this power is not just some kind of fantasy? How do we know that we don't believe this in vain? How do we know that we're not giving our life to something which is totally pointless? Well, Jesus shows us that it is true from the Scriptures. Now, the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. And so Jesus gives them a verse from the book of Exodus. A verse which all of them would know and believe very well. It comes from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 6, when Moses is standing at the burning bush. And God's people had been in slavery for hundreds of years, and God is going to free them. And Moses had this huge task of leading them out of Egypt. And God reminds Moses that he is the God of the covenant, the covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. So God made a covenant with Abraham where he would be, uh, Abraham would be blessed forever by being a great nation. A nation that would bless all nations. 
And that promise is given again in Genesis 17. God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, if Abraham had died and went to the grave with no life after death, then Abraham would not benefit from the covenant here because he would have died before he'd even become a great nation. And if God was going to be his God forever, then surely that means that even after death, Abraham would live and God would continue to be his God. Because when God makes a covenant, it is taken beyond the temporary realm of earth and is based on a relationship with the God who is eternal. So when Jesus uses these words, he is saying this, if God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, then those men are very much alive in some form and they are with God. He is still their God. Now this would have encouraged Moses because Moses was going to be asked to do something impossible to lead God's people from slavery. But Moses has shown that his success will come because the God who is promising it is the God of the eternal covenant. And God keeps his promises to his people, a people who will live on forever with him. And so God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am, as in the present tense. He is still their God because they are still alive with God and will be forever because they are his people. And Jesus says, interprets this as by saying, God is the God of the living. That is those who live on after death, which is all of us who are God's people. All of us have this resurrection hope because he is always our God. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that resurrection day is a day when all people, whether you're Christian or not, will be raised, some to a new life in heaven, some to judgment in hell. But God is the God of resurrection. Now Jesus spoke to the Sadducees from the Old Testament scriptures But our hope is based on something even more clear than that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Paul preached in Athens, he said this, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Because Jesus is risen... We can know that what God says is true. Last week we read in John chapter 1 how Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Word of God who is risen from the dead. He is the power of God and the Scriptures incarnated. He has come to this earth, He has died for our sins, He has risen from the dead, He has done this in history so that we can be sure that the great resurrection hope that we have is true. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, we do not labor in vain. In verse 33, the crowds we read were astonished. But it doesn't say that they all believed. I mean, what Jesus was saying was astonishing. (laughs) 
but they don't all believe. What do you think about these things? Which use of incredible would you use? Is there something which you think, I cannot believe this? Or is there something which you say, wow, what an incredible, wonderful, awesome hope that we have in Jesus Christ? If you're not a Christian, let me encourage you, look into these things. Because there is a day coming, as Paul has just told us, when you will have to face God. And the scriptures are here to help us to be ready for that day by showing us who Jesus is, what he has done, and how to follow him. But if you're a Christian this morning, we need to take great comfort from these words, don't we? We should be living now for that day, living heavenly lives here on earth. Because the resurrection is a physical reality for us in the future. But even now, the power of God is at work in in us, on display, transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus. As we live transformed, resurrected, new lives for the glory of God. And so let us live like we belong to the new creation. Whilst all the time, and perhaps even more so in our days, praying, come Lord Jesus, as we look forward to that day. But it is coming. Be sure. Have hope. He is risen from the dead. Well, as we look forward to our final resurrection, we can be assured by the scriptures and the power of God that all will be well. We need to hear that. We need to believe that. It gives us hope. And it's the words of our final hymn, All Will Be Well. Thank you.
about the scriptures and the power of God that gives us assurance that the resurrection is real but our Lord has left us with another assurance that we can participate in by giving us the Lord's Supper to remind us of where we find the forgiveness of sin that means that we can be with God in heaven and as we take the bread and the cup we remind each other of what Jesus has done on the cross And we confess to God and each other that we still believe that what Jesus has done and the effects of his sacrifice are true. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. But before we uh, come to the table, let's have a moment of quiet, uh, just as we consider the cross of Christ and confess our sins to God, knowing the cross is the only place we find forgiveness. So let's just have a moment of quiet as we do that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the cross and all that it represents. We thank you that Jesus has died for our sins and we confess our sins to you. We have sinned against you and against one another. We have not loved you as we ought to have loved you. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We confess that we desperately need the cross of Christ. And we thank you that because of that cross, we can pray for forgiveness knowing that it is freely given to us because Christ has paid for our sins. And as we take the bread and the cup, we remember again what you have done and we confess again that we believe that this is true. Amen. Okay, whoever's uh, helping (laughs) can come and do that now. Um, The bread uh, represents the body of our Lord given on the cross. Before we uh, distribute it, though, I'd like us to read uh, some of Paul's words to us from 1 Corinthians 11. And we'll read this together as a congregation. So we're going to read these words that Paul has spoken uh, to us about the body and uh, blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we'll stand together and read this and then take our seats and then the bread will come, well, uh, taken to you and placed in your hands and then if we hold on to the bread, uh, we'll eat the bread together. So let's stand as we read these words from 1 Corinthians 11 uh, together. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus says, eat this in remembrance of me. Well, the cup represents the blood of our Lord Jesus. Blood shed for us as a seal of the covenant of the forgiveness of sins. And as before, if we can stand together and read Paul's words to us, uh, we'll do that. And then the cup will be given, uh, taken round and you can take the cup uh, yourselves from the tray. So let's stand uh, as we read these words together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
Jesus said, drink this in remembrance of me. We eat this bread and we drink this cup until he comes. And we know that that day is coming. We know it because Jesus did not remain dead. He is risen from the dead. He is Lord. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. This is our hope. This is God's word. Amen. Trust. 